0: Thank you guys so much for having the chance to uh, talk about season two, but I, I'd also, I mean, I, when I think of Handmaid's tale, I just think of it as, as this long, beautiful, dark story that uh, that we've been taking on, and I think, you know, today's July 13th, and I guess the season finale just happened uh, a few days ago, and just to let everyone know, I'm, I'm only halfway through season two, so spoiler alert, I don't know what the hell happens at the end. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. So we, we won't talk to you about it <laughs> uh,
0: And that's fine And for anyone who's listening to this conversation My goal is not to give any spoilers away We're not looking at diving into characters Or storyline pers- uh, specifically but I'm really excited to have the sound and music composer uh, with me today. I'd love to st- start off with introducing everybody. Um, we have dialogue supervisor, David McCallan. Lou, you gotta help me out with your last name. How do we pronounce it?
1: Uh, Lou Solikovsky.
0: And Joe Morrow, re-recording mixers. Our composer, Adam Taylor, and our supervising sound editor, Jane Tattersall. Well, I'd love just to turn the clock back to when this project first came to you. How did the project start? Who was the first point of contact? And what are your thoughts? Because I've heard the other side of the story, which was when the story was first being pitched. But I'd love to hear about when you guys first found out about this project.
2: David and I, who first heard about it, uh, we've worked with a, a longtime uh, um, producer whose name is Sheila Hawken. Mm-hmm. And we've done a number of shows, that, like TV series that she's done, some of which are very high profile. And she mentioned it at some point to, I think she probably mentioned it to David. Um, but she talked to both of us about it, and um just sort of said it was was in the in possibly in the future for us, mm.
3: yeah, I think we were just at the tail end of season three of Penny Dreadful, which we'd done with Sheila, and we kind of knew that show was wrapping up, although it wasn't in the press yet that uh John Logan wasn't going to continue uh, and he sort of saw the show ending after three seasons. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we were sitting around talking with Sheila about the future, and she said, um, well, you know, um, there's a show bubbling around for Toronto, which is The Handmaid's Tale with Elizabeth Moss. And I think we all kind of just sort of stopped ourselves for a second and just thought about the significance of that. The Handmaid's Tale is a iconic Canadian novel, and we're all familiar with it. Elizabeth Moss is somebody that we're all familiar with for sure from... Not only um, Peggy and Mad Men, but the other shows that she's been a part of, mm. and so we saw the the Handmaids as like, well, that's what's going to replace uh, Penny Dreadful for us <laughs> in the in the timeline of, that we would be working with Sheila, and it would allow us to continue to work with her. That's um, cool, yeah. So we were pretty excited, but it did. Um, uh, you, you know, I would I would say that it wasn't until the Super Bowl last year when Hulu ran two spots on the Super Bowl, mm-hmm. that we realized just how significant this show was gonna be. Um, we knew it was great right from the beginning, as soon as we saw the first episode. Everybody knew the show was gonna be great, but you just don't know what's gonna penetrate mm-hmm. culturally and what people will watch. And But I think we started to really recognize that the show was gonna be something people watched. I still don't think any of us saw until it had aired uh, just how significant it was going to become within uh, for the viewing audience and for Hulu, and you know, I, um, you know. So we were we'd probably been working on it for six months before sure. we realized what we were a part of. Um, I'd be curious to hear what Adam would add to that too, because he's down in Los Angeles, and we have never really worked with him uh, before.
0: Yeah, and and also just to preface, Adam, you've also worked with Reed um, Murano, right?
4: Yeah, she's actually, Reed is who got me involved at the beginning. Um, Up until then, I had mostly been scoring like cinematic ads here in L.A. Mm. And I found Reed through pitching for a movie she was doing called Meadowland and landed it and ended up working for her on that. And we just uh, both saw things the exact same way, um, same taste and everything. And uh, she called me, I think, or maybe texted, and told me that she was directing this TV show, and that Elizabeth Moss was, <clears throat> excuse me, going to be the lead actress. And she was also in the movie Meadowland, and they were both pushing mm-hmm. for me to Bruce to be the composer, despite me not having any TV credit yet. Um, so they—they, they, I think they showed him some of the stuff from the movie, and it was close and tone to what they were hoping to get for the score and then i met with bruce um at his office maybe like a week later and then you know the the waiting period just nervously watching my phone and email <laughs> and then reed and then reed told me like i think i think we're um you know lizzie and i are really pushing you know keep, hold on i'm like okay oh, gosh. <laughs> and then i eventually found out i'd gotten it and Yeah, that was really fun. And uh, as far as um, experiences of realizing it, you know, it's my first TV show ever. And uh, I didn't really have any point of reference or any context. So, but I do recall um, sitting in a pub with some friends and watching the returns for the presidential, you know, win. And as it looked more and more apparent that Trump was going to win, I've I remember telling my friends, like, man, this show I'm working on right now is going to be a whole different, you know, game now that this guy won the presidency. It's going to be so much more relevant and, uh, I think, strike at the heart of some of the issues that are going on in America right now.
0: That's – you just reminded me because I remember when the first season did come out and people were like this – like the memes and the online social commentary was the content of this material feels like it is a documentary or just what's happening today when we look outside the window. And that leads me to my next question for you guys is what was, I mean, yes, this, uh, like you mentioned, there's the reference of the original material of, you know, the book. But what was the visual aesthetic or what was the point of reference that everyone was given when it came to like, this is how we want to represent it in the soundtrack and in the music score how did you guys establish that? Because now being two seasons in, it's incredibly uh, unique in terms of how you guys treat silence, pacing, your overall kind of sense of the world. But day one, how did you guys determine, you know, what was gonna work, what wasn't gonna work?
1: We had a a, a meeting or it wasn't really a a spotting session. It was more of a meeting. Uh, Reed was there. Uh, Bruce was there, um, our sound crew was there, Sheila was there, um, uh, Warren was there, and um, they just talked to us about the look and feel of the show. Mm-hmm. And they talked to us about Gilead and the society and even some of the um, sort of political background we might need to know in order to decide you know, what kinds of sounds would play uh, say for those black vehicles. And uh, so there, it was like a really interesting kind of um, meeting conversation. Ideas were flying around. Bruce had it like a really, you know, firm handle on what he was looking for. Uh, Warren was just pushing us to be as creative as possible. Reed had such a clear vision, and as you could see, you know, with her images, but she also had a lot of sound uh, specific type ideas um that were spilled from score into sound design and so that day that we all spent talking about it was kind of a good launching point for mm. where the show was going to go and that was you know well before we got to work on the first episode but that kind of primed us to um just start having the ideas and thinking about it and and like approaching the show a certain way just based on them giving us that time and that and and all that insight and even before
5: that remember they gave us those look and mood books that were like very extensive in terms of Mm -hmm, their ideas for it was it was
2: 60 pages
5: yeah and and they and they thought about sound in those books as well
3: yeah, I think Reed had prepared that in her pitch to do the show and it was forwarded to all of us and we all read through it and there were a, a ton of sound and music comments in it even though it was on paper and it was the images a lot of the images were things that Reed had shot before so it was her photography and, or things that she was taking inspiration from uh, and you, you know I, I, that's not a common thing for us to see but it was really uncommon to see the sound comments
0: Mm. Adam how was it for you in terms of initially just working with the sound team and the creative team to establishing the tone of music and also you know spotting episodes and initially trying to figure out because there's a lot of music throughout it's not a sparse track at all yeah um once I heard from Reed that I
4: got the job uh, immediately started um talking with her over the phone sending each other emails and she, yeah, I, she also sent me a lot of photography and shots from when they first started shooting like the pilot. And I was responding to those writing themes and sketches and sending them back and forth and landed on a few. And then it was coming down on the wire until I finally got something that she was happy about that is kind of the Gilead dread, weird, whirly sounds, which mm-hmm. is... Basically just, it sounds like a broken synth going through a tape echo. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I was mostly just working with Reed to land those like maybe four or five core themes and then developing those out. Uh, And then uh, right off the bat, you know, I was very uh, inexperienced and Yuri, this music editor who was on both episodes, came to my rescue and taught me how to do all the work and prep stems (laughs) and... Everything. So he was there holding my hand. And I was supposed to turn in the pilot, I think, um, before Christmas. And I worked right through the two-week period and was working with him. And he's such a kind guy. He's very quiet. And he was up there, you know, responding to my texts and emails. And I, you know, turned in the pilot, like, with a day to spare. Mm. The poor guy was working the whole time with me.
0: (laughs) Wow. I mean, did you feel the pressure of proving to – that's the difference of um – for a Hulu show, I guess, or any of these kind of VOD shows that like, do they green light the whole, se- the whole first season or what was kind of that the iterations of establishing the uh, season one?
2: It was the whole first season. It wasn't just a pilot mm-hmm. um, in terms of the actual producing the show. And uh, I think we all felt tremendous pressure to do a good job, but, um, it was The pressure was a little bit different than some shows, at least for me, and I, I think maybe for the others, in which um, we weren't, a, we were encouraged like, over and over and over again to experiment, to do new things, to just throw something up and just, you know, just try it. Try it. Um, I, I, like Reed had done a lot of temp sound work in the first episode, but she said, you know, don't, you know, this is what I really like, and I these are the aspects that I like about it. But feel free to just do anything you want that you think would also work. Mm-hmm. And when someone gives you that freedom, then that the pressure is is not to like have them like it and do a good job. It's to do justice to the creative um, inspiration that mm-hmm. you provided.
0: And and how did everybody find in terms of what was captured on set with your um, with your production sound mixers? How much other material are you having to create? Um, sound design. Do you have time? Do you have the budget and resources to go out and record new sounds for um, for this show? Like, how much exploration is there? And you know, what, what type of tracks are you getting from your production sound mixers?
3: So, uh, our production sound mixer is uh,
1: Sylvain how do you pronounce it S- sylvan arsenault per- sylvan arsenault in season two and mm-hmm. it was john Thompson. john thompson in season in one season one that's yeah. right um
3: and uh, uh you know we know both of of the recordists really well mm-hmm. uh, the switch from john to uh Sylvain was um uh, a choice by uh, made by john um and uh uh, so it was, you know, we had to uh, adapt to that, but we've worked with both of them uh, a lot. I mean, they're, they're doing a, a really good job uh, on set. There are a lot of complications for them. Um, the, the studio is a little bit noisy uh, with some unwanted stuff. Uh, the actors are really quiet uh, in their performances mm-hmm. and they want to stay that way. So, even if we are bringing them in for ADR, they're staying really quiet. Sure. The sets are noisy. Uh, Floors are really creaky on the sets. Bruce loves the creaky floors, Mm -hmm. um, which are great when the actors are walking around, but they're not as good when the camera person is walking around (laughs) (laughs) or the crew is walking and following Lizzie around or something like that. Yeah. Um, And, you know, we are very, very careful about what we ask the actors to redo in studio. We do full spotting sessions and and uh, I review everything with Lou and with Sheila before we ask the actors to do it. And we explore all of the uh, options that we would have to uh, replace stuff without asking them to record it in studio, Mm -hmm. but we still do some stuff and I, I try to make sure that the session is at least half of the time we're doing creative work rather than technical replacement work and giving them a chance to act. And not just uh, recite uh, material. Mm-hmm. Um, from a creative and sound design stuff. I, I mean, I think they they reach for stuff, but um, I think Jane takes over. And and you know, we like I strip out most of the sound effects in my session, and and when I'm finished editing it, I create these tracks of production sound effects, and I send them to the sound effects department where they integrate them with the foley and blend all of that together. So by the time Joe has it, it's integrated. But I, but Jane, uh, why don't you take over from there in the context of the handover of set sound to sound
2: design? Um, well, as David said, we, we appreciate having whatever is recorded on set and using it. I mean, an example I might give is there's a, a, a bunch of babies who are being born or being handled or else they're just um, they're just small children. And so they're um, like, often we'll try to use those sounds as much as possible, but we can't use them entirely because there's dialogue in and around them or
1: Mm. over
2: top of them. So David will give us as much as possible. I'm actually talking about newborn babies in a couple of cases. And um, so it's it's hard to get recordings of very newborn babies. Mm -hmm. They sound quite distinctive. So we've been able to, Um, use some of the production and then fill it out with some other recordings that we've done, not only this year or like last year, but in years before um, we have a fairly extensive library that we're always adding to whenever circumstances are, are good for getting a new recording Mm -hmm. like a baby, for example. Uh, And then, um, I mean, and there's things like sounds of walking around the house. Bruce is very, um, Enamored of the creeks that come with the house that Alfred lives in, the commander's house, and so we supplement the creeks, but we also keep the creeks that David has, good, you know, separated, because everybody remembers the creeks. They everyone has a very good sound memory, and so they're, you know, we're trying to match them, and then add to them, and and we do a certain amount of extra new sound recording, but. Our first instinct is not to go out and do some recording of new sound effects, simply because we have a very limited schedule. We have 10 days of sound editing. Yeah. And and so we just, there's two of us, we have like two sound editors, technically we get five days apiece. So it's a piece. So it's a short time in which to gather something else. So we usually stick with the library that we've amassed over the years. Yeah, I, I, there's also a lot of making of sounds, though, because there's sound transitions and mm-hmm. not all not all of it is realistic. I mean, a lot of it, the, the the series is very grounded in reality, but some of it has these their transitions to flashbacks, or there's moments where moments of dread or or a mood change, which is um, we we always have um, Adam's score, and then sometimes. We add, like I'll I'll bring in something that might work with the score, and then between Lou and Joe, they and and Sheila, who's kind of overseeing us creatively, um, we work with. We work to maybe add something where it adds an element that helps with the score or something.
0: And that that leads me to my next question for Adam and everyone else: How are you guys able to? creates like is it in the script? Like where where are you guys getting the opportunities to drop to silence or to have a transition? I mean obviously pictures maybe telling you a kind of a cue, but there's so many instances where it's like you guys have created this wonderful opportunity to really be specific uh, where you're drawing attention or stylistically doing something like where is that foresight coming from? Is it something that you guys are able to introduce like here's an idea? What do you guys think or is it already in the script?
1: I think there are a lot of those moments that are created in the cutting room mm-hmm. um, and and when we do our our uh, Creative spot for each episode we notice them, you know, we register them we see them um, one one thing that is pretty great for this show is that when we do the creative spot uh, while Bruce is in town he he comes to those but we've also got Sheila who's sort of running the whole post process um, but she brings the editor and sometimes even the assistant who does a lot of the cutting room sound work and so they sometimes will just kind of explain the motivation be, behind what we're hearing on the reference track and, um, and so that that gives us information as to what they're going for and what they're trying for, um, but once you start doing that kind of stuff, then when you're actually working the track and mixing, then you you, you know like you're sort of in the frame of mind that they the, the cut is putting you in. So you're looking for other opportunities to enhance that or to use it again or mm. or about, just uh, take a cue from that and then add to it. You know.
0: And that's I mean that's my question I guess to even Adam is how do you guys who, who usually delivers material first? Is it at the same time? Because there's wonderful moments when you, you can't differentiate between sound and score. There's a blending of of material. So how do you guys orchestrate that? Is that happy accidents? Or how, how, how do those pl- tend to play out?
4: Um, I'm not sure. Maybe happy accidents. I know a lot of the time um, with a lot of the instrumentation, I went for m- uh, muted tones just as like a a thematic cosmetic choice because of the fact that life in Gilead is like this lo-fi counterfeit you know photocopy of what life used to be so approaching the instrumentation that way I think maybe it lends to have uh, easier blending because they're all the tones are so muted and darkened it can just kind of disappear into the room sound or come back out or something.
0: Last question I had for Adam was what type of instrumentation is kind of your go-to when it comes to this uh, score?
4: Um, I mean, I suppose it depends on the scenes. I definitely would grab specific instruments for um, characters. And I remember Bruce, at the very beginning, first wanted me more to score uh, events, like different ceremonies and have recurring themes that way. But um, that was way in the beginning, when I think maybe they were still writing the... Screenplays. Mm. So, you know, it quickly became more of a character study, especially following June Offred and the Waterfords Mm -hmm. and the little hints of May Day and the Resistance. Um, But uh, typically, you know, there's this masculine kind of gut feeling, you know, theme that occurs often with um, the Commander, which is a cello bass. And uh, I always tried when I could, although at the beginning, Reed isn't a big fan of piano. Yeah. So I would put felt on the piano to mute it and make it sound more um, machine, less tone, you know. And uh, But with June and the flashbacks or with her, I usually tried to get something a little more pure mm-hmm. sounding. Um, and then all the
0: synths for all the crazy, you know,
4: moody stuff.
0: <laughs> something, some of those tricks. Um, so I guess someone else was going to jump in in terms of talking about that.
5: Yeah, I was going to say that it, when Adam provides a score, there's a lot of great pockets in it for the dialogue to come through and also for the sound design to, uh, to shine as well. I, in one particular scene, I think in the colonies, I remember. I think Adam can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but he used a theremin for the first time when (laughs) Marissa Tomei's character comes into the barn and there's sort of this weird theremin sound and then Jane and Brennan in the sound design provided this sort of weird, haunting, whistling wind and they kind of like play off each other for a little bit, creating this weird dissonance that I think really uh, helped with selling the toxic and an uncomfortable environment and weirdness of the colonies. And, uh, yeah, so a lot of my time in the mix is spent shaping this sound design around Adam's wonderful score.
3: And, yeah. and the, the other, like... Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Something that Lou touched on as well, I should mention in, in terms of our process, we're we're pretty old-fashioned in that we we do meet before every episode... Mm-hmm with most of the people in the post production team and and that's where Bruce or, you know, Reed came to all three of the episodes that she directed in the first yeah, season. She great. came to this meetings. And by that time Adam's probably scored, you know, we, probably half of the show has already been scored with rough sketches and ideas about what's gonna happen. And we all just sit and talk about it. And and so after that, which is, you know, it's half a day to a day that we might spend together reviewing, exploring we explore the dialogue and where it's at technically. We explore the sound effects and the creative decisions that they've made in the picture edit. We explore the score. We talk about things that we think we could do uh, in sound afterwards. And then can we all kind of go away from, from that core meeting with an idea of what's to come. And you know, usually we'll get information about what Adam's being asked to do if it's different than what we've got. So we're given that foundation before every before we start working on every episode, uh, it, that helps lead us in the, in the right direction. So by the time we're mixing, everybody's kind of been working towards the same goal already, and uh, as opposed to like all in separate departments. And if we are confused or uncertain about something, um, we do communicate together a lot, and I think that helps us get to the point where when we're delivering the track to the mix and when uh, Lou and Joe take over and start putting it all together, there is a coherence to the plan. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, we still have things that show up that need finessing or work, and, but, uh, but it's not like everybody's just been off on their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that helps us. And we've got a long history of doing that with Sheila on her shows, so it feels very familiar and common to us.
0: Yeah, I don't think there's anything old-fashioned about thinking about <laughs> what you're about to take on. I think... After not watching the show since last season and jumping into the first episode of season two, I was quickly reminded how much I hate and love what you guys are able to achieve emotionally when it comes <laughs> to uh, the the tension. And I I'd I love to just get your thoughts about that tension because you guys are able to achieve that not in a bombastic, loud, in-your-face way. There's no... There's not a lot of gunfights, there's no car chases. I mean, there are, but not, that, that's not. that's not where the tension is being drawn from. You guys are dipping into silence. You're really hanging on long. You're, you're taking the perspective of, of the main characters or whoever's being shown. So like when it comes to tension, which I feel like is top to bottom of every episode, like how do you guys, like what are different approaches that you've found that work for this world and for the story?
2: Can I just say that one of the things that we do is we all take our own responsibility for creating tension mm-hmm. so that we, so we individually might come up with some small ideas and then we, because we're collectively trying to do achieve the same end means that we're all like all those small little things add up to something that Lou and Joe can work, you know, just, to make you know to make it really um really do whatever that that goal is that we've Mm -hmm. got as opposed to like one person saying okay this is our going to be our approach and you do this and you do this and you do that and i I feel like that it's the cumulative effect of all of our heads doing our best in our specific world Mm -hmm. that helps to get us in that direction Mm
1: -hmm. i remember uh at, at one point um bruce said something to us uh which was like if you're ever if you're ever in doubt just think of it from Alfred's point of view and and um if you like if we're in a place where there are a lot of sounds and we're trying to sort it out like it's amazing how you just kind of look at the picture you think about her point of view and then you just start peeling away things and just taking more and more and more out and um sometimes we end up in that kind of silent thing you know and then we look at it and we go wow that that's more impactful you know so um it's definitely like working through it and figuring it out but um we you know we definitely have a lot of those indicators in uh, coming from the cutting Mm -hmm. room and then we're always trying to enhance those moments
2: we also have have have, have producers who are willing to have quiet moments and there are many shows that don't allow that. Like the the, the, the creative people are afraid of the yeah. silences. So we benefit, the show benefits, I think, from that.
0: Something that you guys touched upon earlier was the, the amount of time that you have. You said there were about five days for editorial, or five days per person, I guess, editorial. But like, how much time do you have, Adam? How much time do the mixers have? Like, what's the difference? Like, how, how, kind of walk through your your deliverable, Uh, workflow like how do you guys schedule out a season Uh,
4: it ranged anywhere from 8 to 12 days per episode i recall i usually had to average three to four cues or pieces of music a day to kind of stay on track um the first season i because i was so new i i was doing 12 to 15 hour days seven days a week to stay on top um, and then, you know, getting used to the workflow, I was able to um, have shorter days and hired some help for the season. But yeah, I want to say maybe eight to 10 days. It definitely, it, it changed here and there. There was some times when it was a quicker turnaround, other times when, you know, there was holidays that I got to work on over or whatever. So.
1: And for the mix, um, Joe and I usually pre-dub, I think we're probably on for like, on the book for a day and a half, but we usually have two days. Um, we mix for two days. Uh, we do a playback for Sheila, um, who brings the editor, um, and that that playback usually takes a day, and it, it's uh, a playback that we really. That's when we get the sort of the bigger notes. Um, you know, Sheila's carrying a binder full <laughs> sure. of notes from every every network executive and the music spotting session and uh bruce's all of bruce's notes anything warren might have said and like she's got it all there mm-hmm. so um she's got all that in her mind so after that playback we we do like a sweep on the episode and um, put in all the nips and tucks and then the following day usually just because of the toronto la time we'll usually play um at one o'clock um, uh, in uh, L.A. executives um, at Formosa and um, Toronto producers at our place. And uh, so we run it at one, we grab the notes, and uh, by the end of that day, uh, we've got everyone's notes taken care of.
3: That's Formosa in Santa Monica. Yeah, okay.
1: because yeah. there's a few, oh, few Formosas yeah, yeah,
0: so, yeah. Yeah. so, I mean, because... Uh, on oh, the ahead. dial? Yeah.
3: Uh, on the dialogue side, I have um, ten days for uh, dialogue supervision, mm-hmm. and I get additional editing help on a, per, per episode. And I'll I'll make the decision about whether I want help in uh, dialogue editing or ADR editing. Uh, I shoot all of the ADR myself, mm-hmm. um, and uh, uh, I'll I'll just make the decision based on what else I'm doing cuz we we usually have about 3 or 4 episodes on the go at any one time between once we're in the middle of the show between the show we're editing the show that's right. mixing the show that we're spotting next and so I'll I'll be jumping between episodes pretty frequently in order to be ready for cuz I'll, I'll usually work for 2 or 3 days on a on the prep of an episode before we go into our spotting session so that uh and that's where I'll like sort of thoroughly evaluate what we've got what fixes I can do with the source material mm-hmm. and outtakes and stuff like that. So that when we present it to Sheila and and possibly Bruce um, and the editor, we've got all of the different options that we think could help us solve some problems. Um, Yeah, so that's, and Jane had mentioned what she had. So
0: like, for example, I guess, when did you guys deliver the last episode? We delivered it, I think, like,
5: weeks before it aired right yeah. Something like that yeah, yeah we, we were we were a few weeks ahead of the broadcast okay. yeah we broadcast on Hulu but
3: yeah, I think we did the first episode in February so we're quite a bit ahead of deliver of broadcast for the first episode but it gets tighter and right. tighter <laughs> as, we, as we move uh, once they start broadcasting because they air them every right. week and uh, so our schedule uh, gets um, more aggressive. So by the end, I think we're only two or three weeks before it, it's to, it's it's going to go uh, live. The, yeah. la- the last
1: three episodes mixed very close together. Uh,
0: and do, how, what what's your headspace like when you're getting to that crunch? I mean, do, is it still something that you can get you know remember what your intention was when you started? Like, it's there's so much material. I guess there are about forty five or so minute episodes, so it's there's a lot of material.
1: Yeah, they're like. 54. Okay, 54, even. I don't want to, short <laughs> you to cut you guys short.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and, the, and the last one was like 63. Um, but, uh, you know, we, uh, we carry our spotting notes okay. with us, and, um, and dialogue and sound effects both also make notes and, and feed them forward. So if we ever get to a place in, in the episode where we're like, what do we do here? Mm. Um, There's, you know, there's some good documentation to help us uh, just refresh our memories on what was discussed on the day. Uh, But in a way, the last three episodes were kind of a little bit easier because we're in the mode. Mm -hmm. And like, as soon as we finished one, we started another one and it's like, well, I know exactly where I left off. And and then you just keep powering through it.
3: Uh, Like for the last, um, I would say five or six episodes, on my side, it's in the dialogue. It's like a total whirlwind because I'll be working with an actor, and like you know, we might get uh, Yvonne in for an, her last ADR session. She was in um, Melbourne, and I'm in Toronto, and so we have to coordinate that. And I get her for two hours, and that's it. Wow. That's my last time I yep. can get her, and I've got three episodes to do with her. So uh, I'm kind of, and that's the, the same way with all of the actors, their schedules are, are tight. So I'd be balancing uh, three or four different episodes at any one time through the ADR while also working on individual episodes for the dialogue and trying to get them ready. So by the time we get to the 13th episode, I just kind of feel like I'm coming out of a tornado. <laughs> uh, but it, But I've got this chart to keep track of like who I've shot and when I shot them and uh, uh, it's a chart that I borrowed from a colleague, Dale Sheldrake, who's an ADR supervisor that I've worked with a lot, and he built this thing and showed me uh, some strategies for managing actors when you're shooting in a. You know, I'd be shooting episode thirteen with one actor while we're actually editing episode
0: nine. I usually hear it's what like uh, make sure they're well fed, they have caffeine. What else? <laughs> there's there's a few other tips, but I'm sure you, your tips are a little different. Yeah. Yeah. We also uh, did
2: a lot of the, the last bit of sound editing was done to unlocked picture. I mean, it was close to being close to the final lock, but not exactly. So my, my intention was for those, especially the last three episodes was to get the episode completed and then wait for the conforms that are required. And sometimes they weren't very substantial, you know, it's just like little nips and tucks here, but still they have to be gone mm-hmm. over and make sure the transitions still work and so on. But as long as they're, as long as we're moving forward, like getting, you know, getting through each episode, it's, it's really, for me anyway, it's really not difficult to remember what, what the, what the world is we're building because it's, it's so, it's so much part of the picture. Like you just see what, what the mood is and therefore what it should sound like.
0: I mean, that that's, that that's a great way to kind of summarize i mean you can't really you know put in certain sounds that just wouldn't work like this it's a very dark moody kind of like that colder greener shade throughout a majority of the world depending on like what environments you're in so i can imagine like or it's really the question is is what are the rules of the world for the handmaiden's tale like are there things that you guys don't do um just because it they shouldn't exist from a sound standpoint. There's a lot of stuff that Jane. Maybe you can speak to this too. But um, there's a, there's a big
5: environmental push in Gilead to make it greener to help with the birth rate. Okay. And so the the a lot of the vehicles are electric or hybrids. Um, this season, Bruce really wanted a lot more. Uh, Birds and wildlife in Gilead to help sell that we're in this thriving natural environment Mm -hmm. uh, because of these efforts, and then to contrast that, we really try to make the flashbacks uh, very vibrant sounding with stuff that you don't hear in Gilead, like traffic and Mm -hmm. horns honking and uh, you know source music playing on stereos and uh, less isolating stuff. I guess. Yeah, yeah.
0: And what's maybe Adam? What's the reason? What's the story behind the closing credit music? Like, what? What's the thought of of it? I don't know if anyone's ever asked you, but every time I'm like, there's some message in this track. What? Like, how does that go about? Who's who's deciding those?
4: That is actually the music supervisor. I will usually um, score the end credits, but I think more often than not they use. Uh, source music, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's just it's just more of preference of what they're feeling, how they want to close it out. Because, it, like you said, there's not really source music in the episodes. Like the world, there's no radio in the background in the kitchen when they're cooking the, their meals. <laughs> it's just it's just not how this no. this show works. So.
1: Yeah, it's only I'm only in the flashbacks when we hit, you know, the the world that used to be that. Um, We feature that kind of stuff. Um, I can tell you that um, all the closing credit tracks and even the ones that aren't tracks, like uh, some are soundscapes and Mm -hmm. one was a baseball game. Yes, the baseball uh, game. Yes, that's a great point, yeah. (laughs) Like these, they're all very, very carefully considered and Bruce is going for super specific feel and tone uh, when he chooses that stuff.
0: I think that I think the baseball game one is like the last expected thing I would hear and so when you do hear that as a viewer I'm like what what am I being told here what, what like what clue am i are they alluding to so it, it's great to hear that there is it's not just like something place and i mean I don't think that'd be the case everything in this show is it sounds like it's so well thought out so that's that's exciting to hear. I mean, are there, there's, yeah.
2: there's, there's <laughs> nothing in the show that's random.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> 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 even uh, our direction for the when we're flashing back to the the previous time uh, was to make it make it sound messy, like make the there's lots of random sounds and just very messy and loud and boisterous. Um, but even that, it's all very specifically placed. <laughs>
3: there is a fun story about the uh, the baseball in episode i think that's the end of episode two mm-hmm. um and uh so the um a lot of the first th- in the first three episodes there's a lot of stuff in boston and uh you know the iconic fenway park stuff right. and then the the boston globe so there's a lot of these references to boston before uh the gilead and um the, the, I can't remember the exact thing that leads to it, but there's something very like the, a very emotional ending at the end of episode two. I think that's the episode where uh, June is at the wall that she's built in the uh, in the Boston Globe. And it's extremely emotional and the music is very intense. And uh, there was a feeling like that we didn't we wanted to end that or that they wanted to end that episode without going to a song. And uh, the picture editor on that one is a good friend of mine. His name's uh, Chris Donaldson mm. and he told the story about uh, working on the episode and trying to figure out what to do with the ending and he he just kind of left it and then he said that in his in his dream that night the it came to him of like the Red Sox and the World Series wow. and he woke up and sort of had the idea so he went searching for the sound and and put it in on his own and presented it to Bruce and I think to Warren as well. And they just thought it was perfect. So that was like, it's an example of something that comes out of inspiration from what's happened in the show um, and uh, the people involved in it it, that are, you know, following that creative lead that Bruce has given us. Um, And I think we, we were all pretty connected emotionally to this idea of Boston and what's happened to Boston. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think everybody felt like that really landed uh, and helped sort of conclude that particular theme that that had been built from the beginning of season two.
0: So I guess in, the, in the show there's opportunities when there's a voiceover and it's kind of is it the voice of June? Is it like what like what's the use of the voiceover and like what's unique and specific about uh, of how you guys treat it?
3: Uh, We had voiceover conversations uh, right back from our very first meeting with Bruce and Reed, and they were really specific about what, that they didn't want voiceover to sound like voiceover Mm -hmm. sounds, like the kind of voice of God recorded with a a U87 sitting above everything. And so we, we sort of, they challenged us to kind of come up with something unique, and we went out and... Looked at that from a few different ways, and we recorded the first episode's voiceover. I think four huh. times, and and that was mostly performance, trying to find tone. Uh, uh, Lizzie and and um, Reed working on that with Bruce, and and uh, and so we'd record, and then and and then Lou uh, went off and started experimenting with different uh, ideas about how the voiceover mm-hmm. should sound. Um, Sorry, I got to stop for a second. Lou's just thrown me off because I was just about to talk about what he was <laughs> going to tell me not to talk about. He just told me not to talk about something, so I'll frame Go it a it. bit differently. So if you've read the book, you kind of, the, the voiceover has a story. And if you've read the book, you know what that story is, but if you haven't read the book, you don't know what the story is. It hasn't been revealed yet. So there's a kind of there is a purpose to the voiceover and the way that the voiceover sounds. And Lou spent quite a bit of time experimenting that with that, both practically uh, with recording things and in in studio with different plugins. And we went back and forth on strategies about how this voiceover should sound. And we actually ended up after we were done with uh, what we thought we wanted to present. Uh, Lizzie came in to hear it with Bruce and with Reed into the studio, and Lou played a few different levels of of work that he'd uh, kind of prepared, and and uh, they loved it. And, and it And it has a kind of lo-fi character, uh, I guess is a, is a way of wording it. It doesn't sound really clean, and we needed to document the strategy about how we captured that and what we did because we have recorded with. Uh, Lizzie in in four different studios over the course of the show, and we need to make sure they all kind of capture it the same way uh, so that we have the same starting tool. But then one of the neat things is uh, related to the question that you asked earlier um, uh, about how we remind ourselves of what we're doing. Every episode, Lou brings in the very first bit of voiceover from the very first episode and has it in the session so that he can kind of hear, oh yeah, that's where I was. Uh, and and so that it's not, we're just not just using the plugin settings that we've captured or kept, but there's some adjustment every time to kind of make sure we're back where, where we started at. And I think by the time the show is over, everyone will know the story of the voiceover, but it's a kind of fun mystery for now that we enjoy uh, having being there um, uh, as we work on the different sh- episodes.
1: Yeah, I think the sound, the sound of the voiceover is going to change slowly and progressively, and I'm—I um, thought I would see a bit of it in season two, but I think I'm, we're probably going to see more of it in season three.
0: That's great. What, what was the? Was there a specific microphone that was the right tonality for that? What, what, what did you land on?
3: Uh, I think we landed on—we uh, use uh, mm-hmm. Neumanns eighty ones, yeah. and we used two of them. In uh, one of them, we put right up. Literally like inches from Lizzie's face, and she leans into it, uh, and then the other one sits about a foot or two back, Um, and so we're we're recording it like a voiceover, um, uh, but we've and we but we've got the second one as a kind of backup in case something pops. Although I actually don't think we've ever used the second one, but we just continue with the with the technique. So it's more of a a regular boom microphone, but with her extremely close miked.
1: Uh, yeah, I just wanted to mention, like, the other requirement for for the voiceover that, you know, Bruce and Lizzie talked about mm. is, um, especially in season one, like, it's like there's another character talking in the scene. And so Bruce wanted to to know that the voiceover sounded different enough that it would be like, okay, that's June talking in voiceover, but this is Offred talking in the scene. and uh, And so there had to be... You know, call it lo-fi or whatever, but there just had to be that delineation so that you kind of know that there's one more voice, and it's not you don't think that it's like, uh, offered speaking off camera or something like that.
6: Hmm.
0: That's that's amazing. Like, when did that conversation come up? Was that early on? I mean, obviously, like you said, it's it's referenced in the book or the the style of it's in the book, but when did the conversation come up stylistically to change over the course of these seasons? Where'd that come from?
1: They knew it before shooting the first episode because, um, you know, this was something that uh, Lizzie and Bruce had been discussing for a long time. And uh, so we actually did voiceover pre-records in in anticipation of her possibly wanting to hear the voiceover parts while she was acting. Mm Mm-hmm um and so they played with that i think just for one episode one uh, episode one but truly in the end like uh the way it ended up and i think what she prefers is that she's just acting that voiceover without saying anything so you can see her her facial changes and and body language and she's leaving that gap there because she knows what the voiceover is going to be in most cases Um, and just leaving that space around her acting.
0: There's just something undeniable about her as an actress and what she's capable of. I mean, it's just like what she's been asked to do from the material of of the show and also just emotionally. I I just can't imagine how the conversations she must have about being on this show. And, And obviously you guys have tapped into that with even something as small as a voiceover.
3: Yeah, yeah, I don't think there's anything small when it comes to Lizzie. She's, she takes everything really seriously and works incredibly hard at all aspects of it.
0: Wow, I can't ima- Yeah, that's incredible.
3: She's got like a photographic memory too. Like she knows every nuance. That's true. Yeah. Like when we go to do ADR with her, we barely have to even show her the take
0: in advance. She knows what it is. She looks at the page and she knows what it is. Adam, has there been a, a change in... How you music is treated, or uh, you got through season one. Congratulations! You're now going to get season two. What like what's changed for you from season one to season two? How have you seen your own growth? Being that this was your first kind of major TV uh, series. Yeah, um, I think
4: um, I definitely learned to kind of listen to my gut and my instincts more. Mm-hmm. Um, usually, you know, I'll sit down with an episode and I'll just start doing my rough layouts and I'll just kind of watch the scene a couple of times and just kind of start hearing something in my head or, you know, something, um, in the scene itself inspires some sort of energy or music or even a tempo choice. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, uh, instrumentally I wanted to have a little more, um, orchestra for me. Um, the strings and the live instrumentation were more representative of the humanity in uh, Gilead. And in the second season, we start to see more of that. And the characters are starting to push more against the construct of Gilead and um, kind of, in a a way, having these victories, even though it does seem very dark uh, of a season. (laughs) Um, And the first season, there was more synths and drones and um when we recorded the orchestra in Glendale, we would mix in the sound engineer, um, Scott, uh has this old crazy like Am radio mic and he would put it right on the conductor's uh desk and we would record through that and incorporate that so it had this very small, dirty sound, um, to the first season. And in this season we were actually getting more into the pure tones and we were doing orchestra less and less with mutes on them. And that was uh, something, I guess, that we specifically intentionally chose. Um, and then uh, even getting a as we, getting more comfortable with the process and getting larger groups of musicians and knowing I could write for larger groups, um, like in episode uh, 11, when we have the montage of June giving birth, you know, mm. being being able to really take up more space at that point because it's just the visuals with some sound design and the score. Uh, it's, it's something that- But I just ruined yeah. that because I don't think you've seen that episode yet, did you? <laughs> <laughs> it's all right, it's all right. No, the, the, we'll, I guess that's not too much of a ruining because we all assume
0: she's gonna give birth eventually. Yes, right? let's, well, you, you, I don't know actually, this show is a show just when you think it's, you're gonna go left, you go right, and then <laughs> right. you're completely- She was dreaming the whole time. Yeah. She's not pregnant. It's it's another (laughs) Christopher Nolan Inception story. Go ahead,
1: Uh, Adam. I I have a question. Um, First of all, I I've been meaning to write you and just tell you how I I thought the score was so fantastic in season two, um, a real progression and like an expansion of your palette, you know, and like some really amazing new stuff that you introduced theme wise and tonally. Um, but the the thing that I want to ask you about is like how do you get that broken piano sound <laughs> oh know, the, per, <laughs> the sort of percussive piano yeah thing how do you do that
4: I have uh, don't give them your pair. secrets Adam <laughs> oh no it's not my secret <laughs> yeah a lot of guys are doing it um it I used to I know on some of the demos I actually had a very old um, broken down baldwin piano that, I'm not a pianist at all. I actually learned uh, guitar and then got more into synths and stuff. So uh, I had a buddy take me to a thrift store and get the least horrible sounding piano. Mm. And the hammers were so wiped out, old, crusty that and o- the only way to get any sort of singing tone, I I put felt in between the hammers and the strings to kind of emulate newer pads and getting the mics really close so i can get all the mechanical sounds and noises Um, and then yeah only two mics right up front where your ears would be uh, up to the soundboard and that's that
0: was it (laughs) i love it when sound guys ask composers how they did something because you just assume that
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah it was just like a great addition to this season you know having that extra element to the piano
0: yeah I think uh, something that I, I always, like, love to do is listen to the soundtrack and the score from from projects, whether I'm watching it or afterwards. And that's the great thing about this show is, I guess, you guys, you released, was it season one? But has season two um, score been released already?
4: Uh, no, I... Probably should ask somebody. <laughs> if there's that plan. Yeah, I've put up when I have time. I have a um, a SoundCloud and I put it up there. Okay, but it's almost always requests. Like people can message you through SoundCloud and say, "Oh, I want the the scene with this," and I get it and I go up and put it up or whatever. But oh, wow, That's... I would like to have some sort of release because I I'm also very proud and happy with how a lot of the the tracks turned out.
0: That's just like the world we live in now where people can reach out directly to you guys and kind of pick your brain about the work that you did. I mean, that, that's to me like when you guys reached out to me and said, hey, would you be interested in talking about Handmaiden's Tales, like, no hesitation, but I'm just like, I don't know where to start because trying to get into your, your minds about something that you've been living with now for a few years, it just seems that I'm excited to see what comes next. I mean, is this only going to be a three-season show? Has that been spoken on about or
3: no i don't i don't think we know that
0: okay yeah
3: yeah i like that i, I think Bru- Bru- bruce is on record I, I i think of saying that he could keep writing this 10 like, seasons yeah i think he's, <laughs> like he said like he could what, what? I, I don't like that <laughs> i don't think that I, I think what he means is like Gil- gilead can be explored for sure. a long time um how long what hulu, was you said hulu. how many
4: <laughs> i think
3: i think he said i think it's like in an interview or something he said 10 yeah. wow what so, yeah oh my god spoiler alert <laughs> well let's i, I mean
0: I, l- l- let's just look at the reality i look at when you, uh we're talking about handmaiden's tale being on hulu i see i say this Think of the same thing for house of cards being on netflix where it's like People are talking about it. There's a conversation going on every week. It's, I'm really happy that this show actually didn't just release all at once because it really allows people to have a weekly conversation. I mean, do you find yourselves now that the season has kind of unfolded, like, do you have those conversations among yourselves or family or friends? Like, what is it like to be on that side uh, when, when a show's coming out like this?
1: Absolutely. Uh, I think we all hear from friends and family and wives, (laughs) um, or, or spouses about, you know, like how, how it impacted them. But I, I have to say like, it's pretty great that it comes out once a week because anyone who I've spoken to who's tried binging season one, um, just can't get past three in a row. It's, it's very emotional and dark and, uh, you should watch one a week.
0: I wish I, ha- I, wish I had that self-control, but I've, I've waited this long. <laughs> so my only choice is to watch two or three in a row, which I agree is about my max. And I think it's worth kind of stopping and stepping away from it because every time I go back into the world, it's like, all right, here we go. Like, it's, it's definitely an experience. Uh, does, it, does anyone else have kind of their take on being on this side of it?
3: Uh, I find it interesting that it's actually a show that, I find myself not being allowed to talk about because nobody wants a spoiler so you actually can't participate in the, or you shouldn't participate in the conversation you let other people talk about it and then they see an episode and you can talk about that episode but you can't talk about anything else <laughs> and it's it's interesting to be on something with that kind of pressure like you literally you literally can't let go of any little detail because people don't want to know um, I certainly find that uh, both in you know at home with my uh, my wife who is addicted to it as well as friends mm-hmm. and uh, and family now that they, they um it's not it's not like anything else that I've worked on where you just don't talk about it
0: yeah
2: we talk about it amongst ourselves though like as we get the episodes when before we've started working on the sound we we all look forward to watching it and then we talk about it we yeah. like we talk about the story and the characters and what happens and That doesn't happen in very many shows.
0: You know, the last kind of question I have for everybody is what's being on this side now at the end, the perspective, like what's the takeaway, especially from season two? What do you appreciate? Like, what do you learn? What's different about this show that has really proven, you know, I imagine a lot of you, this is obviously not the first TV show you guys have worked on. So like what is uniquely different about this project that when you look back at it, like what was the takeaway and what was like that learning opportunity?
3: No, it's, it's pretty humbling show. Um, like uh, three weeks from finishing and sort of decompressing, I feel like it's, um, I can look back and think on, uh, a a lot of moments where I learned something or I did had to do something new or take on a new challenge or something that I didn't have already in my toolbox, a way to solve a problem. And I needed to either dig within myself or get help from somebody else and um, you know I I sort of feel like it's asked of me better work than I've ever been able to do before which is exciting but it's also intimidating and it's exhausting Mm -hmm. Um, and and when you're in the middle of it you just do it and you just keep going and some days are frustrating and awkward and hard and and other days are rewarding but now that I'm done the whole thing I, I feel like I think uh, humility is probably the the best word because I'm very very proud of it. It's not like it's technically perfect. There's lots of difficult decisions in there where you're going forward with something that might not be the best choice technically, but it's definitely the most interesting and the most creative choice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, constantly sort of coming up against difficult unfamiliar problems and trying to find ways to solve them that everyone's happy with. Um, That's great.
2: Well, I would say for me that the uh, the thing that is so fantastic about the show and being a part of it is that it requires um, me and and I think everybody else to you know, like really think about what we should hear and what sounds we should have,
6: mm-hmm.
2: as opposed to following a prescription, mm-hmm. which is what mo- most shows you know you just you just know what the formula would be and. And you have to do it because that's what the audience wants and that's what the producers want and that's what the directors want.
6: Yeah.
2: And this one you, you really have to like think about like where where do they live? What would it sound like here? What would we hear? What would offer it here, as we mentioned. And then you know, some of it's imaginary, so it's you have to make it up, but it's still you really have to think about to immerse yourself in the world and think about what it sounds like and that's such a pleasure to do because it doesn't come along very often
5: yeah yeah I feel I, I feel really attached to this show and I think a lot of it is because of the creative freedom that we're given to explore things and try new things and then also just how much the sound affects the uh, the, the whole show, like like Adam's score, adds su- such an interesting element to mm. every scene, and then the sound design of uh, you know the world and the interesting things that are happening, it, uh, it 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 just seems to really matter. And then on top of that, it just seems like the show is so relevant and matters to and to a lot of people that uh, it, it's really just. For, for such a grim show, it's such a joy to work on.
0: That's great.
4: I learned so much, you know, this was my first real job in TV and um I think my my agent was telling me like, you know, when I was on this and all the support and you know, the restraint used, you know, to by everybody, you know, allowing silence Um, my agent was like telling me like you know this is a really great job you're you know (laughs) they're not normally like this you're getting spoiled like there's all these great events and like yeah the you know sheila and the whole team pushed to get live orchestra for a tv show and all these great things and i just i feel so honored and so proud to have been a part of it and you know, I've done other things where I was like, oh, I saw your, you know, right. oh, that's cool. You did that ad. But with this, I mean, people, are like, Oh, what do you do? I do this. What have you done? Tail. It it sparks, um, it's not small talk. It's real yeah. conversation with people that I bump into here in Long Beach and they actually want to discuss issues. And <laughs> that's very rare when you're part of something. That, oh, it's cool. I like the aesthetics. But yeah. this really does get to people where they're living and make them think about things and
0: I've really come to appreciate that. I think that's a huge compliment to everyone on this sound and music team. It's, it. it, it I, I don't know many other shows where I'm just so intrigued by um, what is happening in the mix. It just to me, it, it seems that what you guys are able to achieve stylistically, dramatically, the, the, the tension, it goes so much further. And and you know, I wonder, like, it, does this only live uh, because it is a Hulu show? Does it? I mean, is there a home release version of it also?
1: Uh, MGM is uh, the distributor, okay. and uh, I I'm pretty sure that there's like uh, Blu-rays and streaming options, uh, and you know they're also uh, they've got it slated for like I don't know how many countries. Wow. Um, so so yeah, there. I think you know it, it's interesting because I've been reading reviews of older episodes from The Guardian. Mm-hmm. And, and um, so the UK is, you know, a few months behind us. But mm-hmm. it's interesting to see it permeating different parts of the world. Um, but, but I think you will be able to have it at home. Mm-hmm.
0: That's great. And that, that's the thing. I feel like when something is on Hulu, usually, I mean, hopefully people are watching it on a TV, on a good system. But I imagine a lot of people could be on computers, cell phones, tablets, every place that we don't want them to listen. But I, I would hope that maybe they <laughs> would even have... Uh, headphones or a good system. The nerve. <laughs> <laughs> what is? Uh, I swear I'm gonna wind this up. But uh, the like, how many deliverables do you have? Are you? Is it a 5.1 master? Like, what is the final deliverable? Uh,
1: yeah, we're we're delivering a 5.1 master. That's the main format, mm-hmm. and you know, for broad pass, broadcast specification. Yep. And then um, we do an LTRT, which I don't think in the U.S is applicable but um it's still a requirement um in a lot of territories including canada Hmm. um so those are those are kind of the main deliverables we were uh i know they were going uh ultra hd visually and there was talk of of trying to do dolby atmos in season two but the schedule just got so crammed at the end that they were very concerned about meeting deliveries Mm -hmm. so um, I'm kind of looking forward to that conversation again for season three I think this is the kind of show that Dolby Atmos in in its subtleties could could really provide us with a bit more palette
0: just going back to Adam with your soundtrack I'm just looking online now it looks like the the first season is on it was, I guess lakeshore records and it, it is on Spotify and imagine every every other platform and obviously your Soundcloud is a great place did uh did anyone from the sound team ever like did they give you any like a sound like an opportunity to release a soundscape or like the world I, I, I've only seen it once before, more recently once was like the world of from Blade Runner 2049 but like has there ever been any interest of releasing uh kind of the soundscape or sound design from Iliad from From this world? I don't think so. All right, well, then maybe this is the first request because I think you guys should. (laughs) I don't know who, it's kind of like who would want to listen to that, but I just, I think when you do take away the dialogue and maybe even the music, I would just be really curious just to hear, what you know, how those those tracks are because I think the work that you guys do with Adam and the rest of the creative team, it just goes so hand in hand. It's so well thought out. So I just want to congratulate you guys on, just an amazing effort and I hope it doesn't go unrecognized uh, I'm not sure if if was the show recognized at all when it with with awards for the second season are we there yet for this
3: Uh, yeah the Emmy nominations came out yesterday and Lou and Joe were nominated for great sound mixing uh, for season two episode one I think
0: yeah yeah well congratulations you guys I mean that's
5: that's amazing thanks thanks very much and thanks for your kind words too. we we uh spend a lot of time trying to create that soundscape and it it's nice to hear uh that you appreciate it
0: i mean like okay it's just like my 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 wife and i watched season 1 together season 2 halfway into the first episode my wife was like i can't like I just can't do it. And then she's like, can you put headphones on? I'm like, fuck, like, really? Like, why? What's it was hearing the score and the soundtrack or just the mix was too much for her in the other room. She's like, can you just put headphones on? I'm like, oh, my gosh. So it's literally been me on a wireless pair of headphones watching the show trying like in by myself. So thank you guys for making it. Uh, what it is I anyway. watch it
5: with I watch it with my wife as well and she often I look over at her and she has her ears plugged with <laughs> her fingers <laughs> and it, I find it's like the greatest compliment it's usually because of the music but Okay. sometimes it's because of what I'm doing
0: oh my gosh alright well yeah. David, Lou, Joe, Adam Jane thank you guys so much uh, Handmaid's Tale obviously season 2 is wrapping up season 3 I suppose will be sometime like what next year? Like, like, have they do you have any sense of? Or you probably can't say anything, but
2: exactly the same release schedule. Oh my gosh! I think so. It airs in March. Did it air March last year?
0: I, think April. I, think April. I think April. April.
2: Okay. Yeah. So it'll be exactly the same, apparently. Uh,
0: for anyone who hasn't at this point, if they have not seen season one or two, check it out. It's on Hulu. It was every Wednesday, I guess, were the new episodes. And um, like I said, the soundtrack is on online. You can check out. Adam's uh, SoundCloud space, which I, I just pulled up and I realized, Adam, we, we need to, oh, I'm going to share this and make sure people are aware of the fact that you are you have these uh, season two tracks on here. I think that's really exciting. So thank you for doing that. And once again, thank you guys. Pretty, really, A lot of fun to talk with you. Thanks,
5: Michael. Thank you. Michael. Thank you. Bye.
0: Thanks again for tuning into my chat with the sound and music team of The Handmaid's Tale. You can hear more conversations with sound designers, composers, and directors on the Soundworks Collection podcast on iTunes and streaming online at soundworkscollection.com. And if you ever have a project that you want to feature on the website, please email us at info at soundworkscollection.com. Talk to you guys soon.